Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Klisman Morati. Klisman is an old contact of mine. Oh, he and I met at Roehampton University. Uh, I seem to remember he had a very bright yellow jacket, and he uh, had gatecrashed one of the classes that I was running over at the uh, entrepreneurship program. And uh, he stood out because he was curious, and I thought, this man's going to go far. Um, there were times when I wish he would have, but I'm delighted that we've stayed in contact. Klesman, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. <laughs> Klesman is the founder of Pareto Economics. He's got a fascinating background. Um, so, Klesman, I'm going to give you 90 seconds. So start with a bit of the family stuff, because uh, I, I think uh, that sets the scene very nicely. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you paint me as a rule breaker, Marcus, already. So I need to either reinforce that stereotype or try to break it. So we'll see which way it goes throughout this podcast. <laughs> so essentially, Marcus, as my name being given out, politicians. Yeah, you can say that again. Um, <laughs> as my name sort of gives it away, I'm not sort of from the UK. I come from what was before the most uh, the most uh, quarantined and the most uh, radical socialist country in the world. And when communism broke, essentially my parents, as well as 300 million other families across the Soviet bloc, had a decision to make. So they either stay where they are and see a country which they live in and are from develop into a Goliath, which they wouldn't recognize over the next 30 years, or they decide to pick up their bags, toss the dice, and move elsewhere to develop a life. Okay. So my parents decided to do the latter. So we moved to the UK. And immediately as growing up, you know, I realized that when I would go to friends' houses and hear the conversations they had compared to my family's conversations, they were very different. You know, in our families, we would never talk about the weather or talk about what's on TV or any of these things. It would always be about what's happening back home, what's happening with the government, how our how is grandma and granddad doing? How are the uncles doing? How are the cousins doing? So my initiation into the world of geopolitical risk comes from a very real place, you know. Right. So it's never it's never been an academic practice of mine to, you know, clinically analyze global affairs. So the question in my mind was always why is my country so different to the UK, and that's been something that, which I've been trying to answer throughout my studies and now in my professional life. Uh, as it stands. So with that also comes the stigma or comes the ability to not really fall into the stigmas or the mindsets that the established uh, you know, culture is in that place. So my mind was never on trying to live, or my parents were never in a position to uh, you know, do something because society tells them to do it. They just wanted to create a life for their family here. And I was devoid of the cultural stigmas that inevitably take charge when uh, you don't really move. As an immigrant child myself, but I grew up speaking English, living in uh, British uh, military camps and uh, yeah, going to boarding school. So I, I, I kind of grew up as a Brit anyway, but I always did feel slightly, I knew that I wasn't English, let me put it that way. Growing up as an immigrant, what perspective did that give you in terms of, because you grew up in London, so that's very multicultural as well. What perspective did that give you that you now have a filter on the world that allows you to um, see people for who they are? That's a good question. And I don't think it's a case, in my case, at least, it's not about 
being an immigrant as much as being able to associate with the whole spectrum of societal hierarchy. When I was in, because we lived in Ireland as well, I went to one of the best school, one of the best private schools in Ireland, and as well as one of the worst in the same in the same five years. So I was in classes in some of the best private schools where they taught Plato at thirteen. Well, then I was in some of the worst schools where they had barbed wires around the walls and bars on the windows and doors. Where so you had to apply. The ability, so the ability to actually see the psychologies. Of, of culture and me not being part of one or the other holistically allowed me to see that people buy into the culture they're most exposed to. But because I never had the ability to be part of anyone for a long period of time, I was almost like a cultural hobo jumping from one to the next, which allows me to have a very independent view on the way people work because I don't ascribe myself to any sort of uh, group, if you say it that way. Interesting, because I, I grew up never feeling like I fit in and always looking like uh, or feeling like I was an outsider observing from like a third party. And what that has given me over the years is more compassion, because being able to see the build up, see the bigger picture, look for patterns, that's been really instructive. Uh, but it has taken many years for me to get my selfishness and my ego out of the way. Mm. Okay, so t- tell me this. You, uh, you t- you've developed something, uh, a super index called the Global Power Index. T- talk me through the areas that that covers, because I think that's really pertinent to the planning that many of the listeners uh, to the podcast uh, really need to pay attention to, but probably aren't even, it's not even on their radar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the main point of Pareto Economics was to answer one very specific question, Marcus. And that is, how will the world be changed and challenged over the next 100 years? And the reason we have this 100 years outlook is because we realize that the two most important entities in the world, be they government or the private sector, tend to have very short-term time cycles when thinking about decisions. Governments tend to have a every election cycle timeline, which is four to five years, and investors and corporations tend to think of the world through every quarter. But the issues we're facing in the world today, be they geopolitical risk, globalization, transformative technology, or societal change, you need a much more longer time outlook when making decisions off the back of these changes. And if you don't have them, you'll be focused on thematic analysis, which means you'll be focusing on the crisis of the day. And that changes depend, uh, as fast as the wind blows is how fast crises move and change. Well, I mean, we, we just look at the last couple of weeks since Liz Trust became PM. It's been uh, up, it's been down, it's been down, it's been down, it's been up, it's been down. So clearly that creates massive uncertainty. And in you know, the last three years, we've had a lot of that. Going ahead, we still have a lot to look forward to, and we need to be ready to adapt. So talk us through the different components and why, what they mean, first of all. Define them. Yeah, yeah, sure. So essentially, to fast forward the analysis, what we're saying is that um, the main... The main MO of a country is to is power, right? And the way we define power is the ability of a country to secure their own interests. So then the question becomes, how do they do that? What do they have at their disposal to secure their own interests? So we came up with the, the conceptual framework called the Centers of Power Framework, which essentially allow you to derive six centers of power which a country has at their disposal. And then we created six sub-indices in correspondence to them. 
So they include a country's active consumer market, their military balance, their technological leadership, the systemically important commodities, their geostrategic positioning, and their financial strength. These are the six areas which they have at their disposal. So okay. that is very academic practice only, but then we quantified them and we created six of indices where we rank the world across these six areas, and then we combine them to create the, the super index, which is the global power index. Right. So e- each one of those six top headlines has six sub-indices. Right. Okay. Wow. That's uh, a lot of data. No, okay. No. So um, talk to me about an active consumer market. What does that mean? An active consumer market is, is essentially looking at the, at the economic output and productivity of your population. So you're looking at different data points in that, some which are self-created, which we've made ourselves, which are proprietary, which we couldn't find a measure which accurately tries to measure what we want to measure, and some are open source data points. Okay, so what's the stuff that so you've identified? There are gaps that needed to be filled. Well, the gaps that need to, to be filled is essentially holistically looking at a country through an, a, a holistic lens as opposed to, to, to dividing it in terms of uh, the ease of doing business or the transparency international corruption index and all of these different measures, which measure very specific things, but take a lot of time to put together to build a holistic picture for a company or for a government, as even if they have the, the, uh, the intention or the, uh, or the appetite to do so. This essentially creates an MOT of a country, which then you can plan and see, given the ambitions of the leadership and the intentions of the leadership and their abilities to do what they say they want to do, as measured by the GPI, what is the likelihood of them doing this and what will the country look like in the future? Okay. And so, but the the active consumer market is presumably then stuff like GDP, it's uh, productivity levels, it's um, absenteeism, sickness, turnover, it's got, it's got a bunch. It's got a bunch of the, these measures, and I hesitate to tell you exactly what they are because military, okay, well, as, as you can imagine. Uh, of course, okay. And military balance. What does that mean? So again, the military balance is the military ability and the experience of a country's military arm. So again, with that, we're seeing how capable and how and how how far-reaching their military capabilities are. Again, that being a a, a input of the ability of that country to secure their own interests. And we're saying that if a country maximizes themselves on all of these six different areas, they have maximal ability to secure their own interests, which is why, for example, America ranks number one. And America doesn't rank number one because during, after World War II, the British Empire magically passed over the baton of power to the, to, to the Americans. It's because they maximize themselves faster than anyone else, faster than the Soviet Union did, because when that collapsed, they were the undisputed power in the world. But as countries grow and develop, their COPs also grow and develop, which is why we're seeing the changes we're seeing in the world today. Okay, excellent. And technological leadership, presumably. Again, this essentially goes into their, their innovation and the spread of the technologies that is created indigenous, indigenous, indigenously. I can't even say that word anymore. Indigenously. Indigenously <laughs> uh, within a country. So you're looking at, again, the types of technologies they're developing, the IP they have, you're looking at the many different measures which allow you to see the potential of the, of the technological landscape of this country and whether they're producers or they're customers of technologies from across the world. Interesting. Okay, so th- that will uh, be very indicative uh, just how uh, beholden they are to countries that have strength in those areas. Exactly. 
So presumably that would give a massive skew to a place like Taiwan. Well, Taiwan isn't measured because Taiwan technically is, isn't a country. Uh-huh. And nor do, or nor do any of the P5 members of the Security Council claim they're a country. So, you know, that again gets political. But um, Taiwan, in terms of our measures, we don't rank them as an individual country because although they may want to be seen as it, none of the powers which, which quite frankly, have the power to recognize them want to or have the desire to recognize them. No, understood. Okay. And that, uh, I could be dragging you into a difficult conversation, so I'll no, okay. sidestep nicely. Okay. And uh, geostrategic positioning. So that again looks at a country's physical terrain and what they have at their disposal there, and also the relationship between them and their neighbors. So we measure that, we quantify that to showcase, given the actual landmass and given where it's located in the map, and uh, how friendly or unfriendly they are with uh, their neighbors, what is the ability of this country's geostrategic positioning to secure their own interests? Got it. Okay. And then uh, uh, systemically important commodities. Yeah. So that, again, is looking at the commodities which are produced in the country, how valuable these commodities are, how much they they produce of them, and how much they import of them as well. Right. So these are the domestic resources and what goes in and out of the country. Okay, fine. Uh, financial strength, that's pretty self-explanatory. Right, okay. I'm very curious about, um, is that, are there patterns to the interplay between these six areas? And uh, if you're trying to uh, create change, is there one that you have to focus on first that creates a trickle up or down to the rest? You're speaking just like a client does there, Marcus, with, with, with that question, which, which is great. Essentially, that kind of question is typically asked by governments more than it's asked by investors because they have the direct ability to to change and manipulate and to grow these six six, uh, COPs, centers of power. So that's a conversation that we typically have with governments through their embassies in in, in London or directly with the governments themselves when they are trying to better create a future for their country. And what always helps with that is having a vision which is codified and written down as to what this country wants to achieve in the future. And having the resources to actually do this also helps dramatically. You see the GCC countries, for example, have a vision 2030, vision 2035, vision 2040. The showcase what they want this country to look like in this time period and working towards that. Many countries don't really have this. And for those that don't have this, they will face the brain drain, they'll face the migration chaos, and they'll face being at the at the at the mercy of other countries which are doing this, which have better power focuses, which then allows them to be stronger relative to those which don't have right. this position. Okay, but presumably then that favors autocracies and what's it, tyrants. Not necessarily. You you don't really need to uh have that kind of power structure to be able to have the ability to secure your own interests. For example, believe it or not, Singapore ranks fourth in the world. Yeah. So you have the US ranking number one, Russia number two, China number three, and Singapore number four, right? But what this measure doesn't show you, at least the free version doesn't show you the uh, the scores between the countries. So how far behind is Singapore to China? How far ahead is the US from Russia? How far below, how, how far, I mean, what is the, essentially, what is the power differential or the developmental differential between the countries you're looking at? Once you have this, Numbered, codified, you can truly see what this country needs to do to develop and what you as an investor can do to take advantage of these. Right. Things. Okay. So 
presumably then developing countries should be using the Global Power Index to identify their allies and partners and work in concert with one another. Because if they can start finding allies whose strengths make their weaknesses irrelevant, then they can start competing on a uh, higher level uh, on a bigger stage. Are you seeing that happen? What we're seeing is, I'll give you an example. And this is online for anyone who wants to actually see it. So we, uh, on YouTube, in fact, we um, hosted our 2022 Index Summit, which essentially showcased the index for 2022. And in the room, and funny enough, that landed on the exact same day that Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. So we had, we had delegates literally U-turning to go to the thing because their embassies called them back and their, and their corporations called them back. But for those who were there physically and in person, we had uh, the High Commission of South Africa, their representatives came. And they saw that no sub-Saharan, no sub-Saharan African country was represented in the top 10 of the GPI. And he essentially said, what does, what does South Africa need to do to rank higher in this index and to improve their economy? And I essentially said, well, that's a conversation for a private meeting, I guess. But essentially, they need to, again, first of all, have a vision of where they want to see themselves growing and developing into. Mm-hmm. Having the political will to do so and then using their resources and developing their COPs in order to reach them. That's not an over, overnight game. That's a 5 to 10 to 20, 50-year game. But depending on, the, depending on the, uh, you know, the ambition and the energy you have as a country and as a leadership to do so, you will reach this. I'm really very curious because I'm seeing, to me, I'm, I'm not nowhere near as expert as you by any stretch of imagination, so I'm guessing here. But what, what I am seeing are some very serious trends that give me good cause for concern that not only are we heading uh, into a very turbulent period, but we are ill-prepared for it. And democracies in particular are exceptionally vulnerable because we haven't got, we haven't learned how to be resilient in the face of the overwhelming superiority of force and investment and numbers of bots and uh, bad, bad actors. We're coming up to 2024, where the UK and the US are going into elections. So the next two years, I suspect, are going to be pretty turbulent. And human beings who've just been through three years of this pandemic and lockdown and going into recession, you know, mortgage, hyperinflation, all that stuff, and the threat of nuclear war, we're not going to respond well to that. So what's your take? Am I being a doom monger? I think your your innate uh, sort of senses are correct. But let me try to um, add some... Some of my uh, analysis on this. Can you add a glimmer of hope somewhere as well? <laughs> I'll try my best. I'll try my best. <laughs> so what, what, what I can definitely say is, look, if you look at the world and the compounding growth of countries' centers of power, the trajectory isn't that all countries are becoming more powerful. There are the split between countries which are becoming more, more, more powerful and less powerful is probably the majority are becoming more, are becoming more powerful across their COPs. Right, but for those who are becoming less powerful, we're seeing this specific dynamic play out. We're seeing that those countries which are losing power in their in, the, in specific COPs, we're seeing migration away from these countries. So people who are living in these countries are moving to other parts of the world. So this means the countries which they left, 
you have, again, a democratic deficit because there's no one there to vote for new leadership, right? You're having the, the, the old political heads there, not needing, not being incentivized to change anything, which is compounding the, the downward spiral. And for those people who come into these more, more established countries, because they have the momentum of growth, we're seeing you know, issues in relation to populism develop, which is causing a political change at the top to respond to this. But what you're also seeing is that, is that uh, those countries which are becoming more, more powerful, having more of a voice on the international stage. So before, we can use the example of, let's say, Saudi Arabia. Right? In the 20s, 1920s, they were a fledgling power. You know, they had no real power until oil was found. And then automatically, through that process, compounded over the next uh, 70 years or so, they became a very fundamental power in the Middle East because with the discovery of oil, which essentially bumped up their systemically important commodity score, it allowed the income from that oil to develop their economy, to develop their military, to have a bigger voice in international affairs. And when countries have more of a voice in international affairs, they demand more of their partners and of their competitors. And if there's a lot of people demanding things and they're becoming more powerful, institutions like the UN and the WTO, for example, or trade, the World Trade Organization, become even more important to make sure that these are the forms in which decisions are made. And having conversations like kicking Russia out of the UN, kicking Russia out of the UN, right, and punishing them or thinking you're punishing them, what you're doing is you're creating a dualistic power uh, centers, one for the ones who believe in the system we're developing or one who don't, and they're going to isolate them. You're not isolating them. You're just creating opportunities for there for there to be a different order of power in the world. You just create to an challenge axis. the status quo. Yeah, you you create an axis of evil, which is the yeah Ronnie Reagan's version of it. So what was uh, really interesting, I've been listening to quite a lot of history audiobooks and uh, podcasts of late, and the origins of World War One came about or were triggered, and America came into the war. Uh, because of this thing called the Zimmerman uh, telegram. And the Americans had allowed the Germans to run their diplomatic um, messages through the American network without being vetted or deciphered. And they were starting to uh, focus on the U-boats and uh, attacking convoys. And the net result of that was that the the Germans got so complacent that they were trying to get the Mexicans to attack so it would distract the Americans and keep them out of the war, get the Japanese to attack the Americans so that would occupy them so then the Germans could uh, run riot. Um, What's fascinating is that during that process, the Germans ended up running these messages over the, uh, the US network. And when the Americans eventually found out, that caused them to be pretty miffed because obviously this was a foreign power using the goodwill of the American network. So that's what brought the Americans into the war. Now, the interconnectedness of all of this is something that I suspect most people don't pay attention to because they don't look beyond their lifetime, they don't look beyond their borders, or very rarely, and they won't look outside of their world. And what I'm seeing with what you're doing is you, you're looking at 100 years' time. It's all big picture. You're using metadata and meta studies. So what it seems to be is that you're taking the conversation to a different level because people operate at a micro level. Then they might elevate to macro, 
but they never really get above the clouds to this meta level. So if you're running a business, you don't necessarily have access to resources like the GPI. And so what do you need to look at? What, what are the questions you need to be asking so you understand that there are more moving parts at play that are going to affect you and you need to know about them so you can adjust and be prepared? That's a good question. That's a question that I've been trying to get potential clients thinking about. And the one thing which I can say you can do is not doing things which you're currently doing. Meaning don't rely on headline risk to inform yourself of macro trends. Yeah. Don't rely on investment reports from investors and from financial heads on what the military strategy is of Russia and what the outcome will be. Okay. Don't rely on things in which people aren't qualified to talk about. And focus more on going to the source. Meaning if you read a report from a newspaper and they quote to you a report that they that they think is important for you to know about, instead of reading the interpretation of that report through the article, go to the report itself and read the executive summary and the conclusion. Don't read the whole thing. Read the executive summary and the conclusion. So you understand what that report is saying holistically. Naturally, you may not have the time to do this. You may not have the energy to do this. You may say, oh, someone else will do this in the organization. So it takes a mentality shift for you to actually have the energy to do this in the first place. And if you can't do that, then you hire a company like like Pareto, which can give you everything you need to understand through our lens and not through the lens of of interpretation of the media, which have their own uh, reasons for writing what they write. So make sure you're focusing on the essential few as opposed to to the unnecessary many. In short. Okay. So again, I think the the message here is discernment. It's knowing which bits of the information are pertinent to the questions that you're asking and to have the entire picture in front of you so that you can then start splicing it in different ways. So you're not falling foul of the lazy why. I think that's the huge problem that I'm seeing in many, many organizations and human beings generally. You know, we, we identify a cause and we say, oh, that's the reason. And then we go blindly down that alley, not realizing there are 12 other f- contributing factors. 100%. Because, I mean, you, you operate in the world of wicked problems, messy, intertwined, interrelated, inter- interdependent problems. I mean, one of the huge ones I would have thought would be massive at the moment would be around uh, security and the integrity of their IP, this and um, the security of their infrastructure, given all the turmoil that's going on at the moment, where does that fit in the index? Before I get there, let me let me contextualize a little bit what you said about the world that I live in, and the way that I explain it to people and for organizations and clients is this: is that is, you know the idea of flipping, right? So you buy something and you you do it up and and you, and you sell it for more. So people can flip you know, shoes or baseball cards or Pokemon cards. That's one level, right? Others can flip houses. Yes, that is a legitimate business of, you know, people, you know, estate agents or not estate agents working with developers to create apartments, to create buildings and flip them. Some people flip companies, right? So that's another thing, you know, you have corporators who do these things, but then there are some very few who flip countries, yeah? So between the countries and the corporations is the world that I live in and the world that I think most international organizations should be having an eye into. Because at that level, understanding what's happening at that level will give you a clear indication as to what you can be doing better to make sure that you're not a victim of these, of these 
of these flips, of this, you know, geopolitical arbitrage that's happening in the world today. Right. For those of you who are interested in topics like this, there is a fabulous, fabulously depressing book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And it's all about a chap whose job it was, was basically to take vast amounts of bribed money into countries and find six families to split it up again, uh, up with, and encourage them to essentially invest in infrastructure and all sorts of stuff. It's by a guy called John Perkins. I don't know, have you read it? Yeah, I've got it. I was just checking my bookshelf and it's there. But um, John Perkins' story, I think, operates in... uh, I mean, you really need to uh, take his work and um, marry it up with other sources too, because if you're looking at it through only his lens, you think the world is... It's is almost like a 007 film. And in some cases, it is that way. But in the majority of cases, you know, rules are there. And um, he lives in a world which is, I think, very hard to even fathom. But um, if you're looking, again, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're taking book, re- uh, book recommendations, if you're yeah, looking please. at purely geopolitical understanding of global power, then anything by Zbigniew Brzezinski, he passed away now, but he was an advisor to the Carter administration, Zbigniew Brzezinski, he's a, he was sort of a Polish immigrant, came to America, was came, went to Canada, then went to America, became sort of a, the chief advisor to the Carter ad, uh, administration. And um, he's got some really, really interesting views on the world. And that's someone, that's, and that's someone and that, because there, there's a lot of these geopolitical analysts these days that talk about stuff, which my point of view, they get it completely wrong. But he, like, he passed away, obviously. I don't know how... Few years ago, but he's a great, great person to um, to read and just watch his videos on YouTube. You know, really watch about the world. He's really well, um, t- two other books I found instructive, and I'm sure you're going to blow at least one of them up. Ray Dalio is making sense of the new world order, and uh, the Fourth Turning uh, by William Strauss and Neil Howe. And I found those very instructional. Yeah. Um, your thoughts? I think Ray Dalio is. Um, I don't think um, you know his views on on the macro view of, of change is anything special because he marries up his knowledge of finance, but he paints a very clean picture of how power went from different empires across time. And there's not really a lot of context into how this happened or why this happened. It's really sort of very sort of for a reader which wants to understand global affairs, but may not have enough time to really dig into it that much themselves. So they listen to a person like Ray, who has a lot of uh, fantastic financial experience. And he has his friends like Kissinger, who gives him insights into the geopolitical world. But that's sort of almost almost like a brand that's overpriced. You know, it's like the Balenciaga of fashion, where you can buy something much cheaper and much better quality and have a a much better time with. So as opposed to going to the Balenciaga... Who who else? Because I found that as a good primer. Who else should we be looking at? My recollection of names is horrible, Marcus, but what I'll do in the show notes, I will, I'll send links to specific people that your audience can actually look into, which I think is helpful because right now my mind is filled with names, but I'm really bad with remembering them. So okay. believe, me, believe me, I'll put, in, I'll put them in the show notes. Okay. Well, a couple of other things I would urge people to do is start paying attention to history. Uh, I would recommend History on Fire, and I would also recommend the hardcore history podcast. They are quite brutal, but when you start looking at the rise and fall of empires, when you look at the way power moves 
it moves. I mean, history repeats itself. And if you don't learn from history, you are doomed to re, uh, to repeat it. And there are many, many mistakes that people in 1922, going up to the crash in 1929, made. We are in a period that economically and commercially feels very, very similar to 1922, based on Todd Capone's research. He researches into sales history. And looking at uh, the magazines that he collects from the 18th and 1900s and early 20th century, we are going through a very, very similar period. And chances are, many salespeople will be laid off and those jobs will never come back. There will be a lot of change going on because technology has moved on a pace. So I'm really interested in your thoughts in terms of the way work and um, the, you know, how society will change over the next 30 years. That's a really big question to answer in sort of a, a two-minute uh, response, but it's certainly going to be different than what we experience today. That's for sure. And there's been, a, there's been a lot of conversation and a lot of different points of view on whether the world's overpopulated or underpopulated. And you have some doomsayers who say we're at overcapacity, we can't be having any more children, and it's the worst thing. But if you look at the data, China, Japan, the UK, the US are going through critical, critical sort of downward spiral of, of actual populations. Which is well, I, I was having a conversation. I had a conversation last week where someone said China doesn't have enough people. And as a result of that, they have to try and push their weight around now because in 10 years' time, there won't be enough people, uh, soldiers, uh, that they can throw at the Americans. Well, there won't be enough people if they expect to have the same influence in the world that they, that, that, that they have now, you know? C countries can always reorganize themselves, but in the reorganization comes opportunities for others to take advantage and others to lose out, you know? Given the fact that we are at, what, 7 billion, 7.1 or so billion people in the world today, that number isn't going to go much higher until it, until it dwindles down. But given the fact, if you think about, we need to maintain the level of production and the level of, uh, of uh, economic growth that, that we're having now, and that needs to be maintained, then no way the population numbers that we're seeing are going to be able to, to um, actually make that happen over the next 50, oh. 100 years. We to organize around smaller, more, more, more uh, short-term supply chains, and this can be done. This isn't an, an impossible thing. We've created such a Goliath through our own intentions and our own abilities. We can always reorganize society. Well, I'm really curious then, because if we're seeing countries emerge, like Nigeria, for example, by, I think it's by 2040, they'll have a population of a billion people, yeah. or is it 2030? Now, they've got a burgeoning technology market. So if your domestic market is taking a bit of a pasting, it makes sense to start looking internationally at these burgeoning markets, doesn't it? That depends, Marcus. I think you know, the, the, these numbers sound impressive. You know, it's there to have the biggest population in Africa, all these things. But if the population isn't as productive as they need to be in order to make an impact in the way they see fit in the world, then population becomes a burden as opposed to an asset. You know, right. so for example, we have, you know, we're called Pareto economics due to the Pareto principle, right? And, you know, the most basic way to understand that is that 20% of the effort uh, essentially amounts to 80% of the outcome. You can look at this in physical numbers, right? If you look at the development of technology throughout the world, 
the vast majority of it comes from the United States, comes from California, comes from Silicon Valley. So the actual ratio between numbers and output is, is vastly smaller than what Nigeria is. Population size, as I mentioned, can be a burden more so than an asset if that population isn't activated in a way which produces mm-hmm. you know, goods and services or produces value Understood. to whatever, whatever demographic they're looking to do it towards. Africa right now, and this is giving away some information for free, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it uh, anyway. Africa ranks as the least powerful region in the world, according to our index. Europe ranks as the most powerful region in the world, right? But you're thinking about Africa's population compared to the, you know, uh, Europe's is different, which, which goes to show that population size doesn't matter as much as activating it and using that to your advantage as a nation state. I, and I, I take your point, and, and I, I wasn't clear, so that's my fault. My point being that there are emerging markets. If, if your domestic market in the next three or four or five years is going to take a pasting, whilst we talk about a global economic recession, it's not global. There will be winners and there will be losers. There always are. It's all yin and yang. That's how the universe works. It's lots of balance. Uh, and whilst um, the global economy may be overall depressed, there will be pockets that you can win at. I think it's important that, first of all, you have foresight and you have vision as to what's coming down the path so that you can discern where you're going to place your bets and what you're going to avoid. Um, because being forewarned is being forearmed. And, and I think part of the problem is that people are not spending enough time stopping, lifting their head up, looking around and seeing what's going on. They're not looking outside of their own world for examples of people solving similar problems. And that is hugely pro- uh, problematic. Mm-hmm. And they're also thinking too short term. Their mm-hmm. pipeline focus is short term. Their recruitment is reactive. Their management is reactive. None of this stuff serves you well, and it doesn't create the conditions for resilience. Yeah. So we're, we're coming close to the end, but there's one question that's been going through my head, and I'm really curious. At the level of government and big private business, there's obviously vested interests, and you've got the power of the lobby groups, the think tanks, which are anything but. You've got these uh, influencers who have massive access. And uh, because of the uh, amount of money that they can throw at their, uh, behind their opinion, they have undue influence. So again, is that built into the global power index? That question as to the ability of certain actors to uh, influence the world and the, the encompassing of that in the index it isn't there, but it's 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 result of it. Meaning, a investor or a country or whatever, a, an actor will throw their money behind where they see the best bets are, right? And typically, the best bets are either countries which are doing very well, or countries which have the potential to do very well. And this is what the index can measure. So, for example, if you are a country, and your score is here, but we can see with this these developments, your score could be here. That gap, that differential, if taken advantage of, can mean big, big returns for any investor. But to go back to the point of almost the incompetencies of, of some business leaders, not out of fault of their own, but because, again, they focus on externalities which don't matter as much and they're reactive. A story that I, I tell sometimes, which is actually scary, 
And I'll tell you why it is. So a few years ago, I was in a room with a chief investment officer or a vice chief investment officer rather, in London talking about the work they do. So they invited me to talk about geopolitical risks. So I said to them, so, you know, given that you invest in emerging markets, who does your geopolitical risk? Do you outsource it to someone? Do you have people on the ground? Like, well, how, how do you do it? Exo Christman, uh, we don't we don't do geopolitical risk, he said. I said, Oh, why? He goes, Oh, um, I get this, Marcus. He goes, Oh, we read the FT. <laughs> now let me just let that simmer into the into and the, how much was the investment of the audience, you know? And I thought to myself, you read I had nothing, I could I I was speechless for about a good 10 seconds. I said, What do you mean you read the FT? Yeah, we you know that's, that's, that's what we do. From that reaction, I thought there's no way that this person is going to be able to uh, they're in lay the seed of a business. <laughs> okay. This has been really fascinating. I'd love to bring you back because it's given me a lot of food for thought. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Klesman, age 23. What would you say to him that you know he would have benefited from but would probably have ignored? You know, I've had really good mentors throughout my life who, who, who gave me the, the, the advice I'll probably give myself in the same point. And that advice was always, you know, keep down the straight path. Don't turn left, don't turn right, don't distract yourselves with short-term pleasures. Know who you are, know what you want to achieve, and just input, input, input. You need input at such a young age. You have nothing to output, you have nothing to show at that age. You can't give an opinion at 23, because what do you know? So you need input. Consistently, consistently, consistently. Are you an only child? Yeah, uh, no. Okay, because it sounds like you spent a lot of time in your head when you were a kid. Well, I was an only child until I was nine years old, which I guess... Uh, All right, so you are an only child. If it's more than six years, it's effectively an only child. Well, I, I've, I've always been sort of too much myself because of the reasons we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. So I've always had a chance and, and space to think about things. And as you mentioned to me once when we were sitting in the... Uh, in, a, in sort of the cafeteria at Roehampton, you said, you're the kind of person that, no matter if it's a president or pauper, you'll just say hi to them. You have no filter. And that's something that I've kept throughout my time. And I find it very... I remember that conversation. You don't have this. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of time has passed since then. Excellent. Okay. So what podcasts, what videos you've mentioned? Biggest uh, Brzezinski. Uh, I think I may have spelt it almost right. So who knows? But uh, yeah, who who else? Um, you you had someone on a while back, and you were raving about him, and I thought he was really interesting. He was um, a fairly phlegmatic American who you were almost fawning over in the interview. It was it was quite sweet because you clearly rated this guy's opinion exceptionally highly. I know we run our own podcast called the Four Corners Podcast, which is available on any platform. You can go to our, our website under the leadership leadership hub tab, and you have the white papers and podcasts there, which which gives you a bunch of really interesting podcasts and our white papers, which again gives you that fundamental understanding of why the world is changing more so than how it's changing, which is very important. But I'll, again, I'll put some more things in the in the in the show notes for your. Thank audience. you. Okay, so tell me this then: blind spots. What what would you say? To- Biggest blind spot is that people need to be able uh, just look for in themselves over the next 12 months. That's a hard question to answer for everyone because everyone has... Uh, okay, for people in sales and you know, they're, they're, they're in direct sales or partnership sales, the yeah. landscape's changing, but yeah. there's something that they're probably missing. 
Yeah, I think like you taught me before, Marcus, is just really understand that each client is unique and different and they have their own pressures and anxieties. So make an effort to really look at the individual person you're speaking to and what their pressures are and and be part of their solution as opposed to being just another vendor that they need to kind of shoo off. Listen to what he said, okay, and play it back. Yeah. It's right. Humanize. It's helped me dramatically. Instead of sending, I never did this, but, you know, I, I received, you know, messages on LinkedIn from all these different people with the copy and paste kind of thing. And I sometimes challenge myself, but this has nothing to do with me. Why would you send me an obvious copy and paste, you know? Because uh, it gets frustrating. And imagine having someone who's a senior uh, a senior decision maker and you have sort of a, a young wolf of Wall Street type of mentality guy who wants to sell everything and, you know, always be closing kind of mentality, coming to each person with the same mentality. And I get people calling us and emailing us all the time with products and services. And I just think back to the lessons you taught when when I was you know um, a lot younger. I thought they do not take any of this into consideration. And it's hurting them, it's hurting their company, it's hurting their bottom line and their reputation in the market, the you know, the more they grow. Won't surprise you that on the basis of the levels of inherent waste, the majority of organizations spend 97 to 99% of their investment getting customers to look at their product. Yeah. And only one to three percent on actually getting them over the line and then looking after them. That's in right. The scene. That's right. The amount of effort that's wasted is shocking. Clisman, how can people get hold of you? Well, I am on LinkedIn, Chris Marathi on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find our uh, YouTube page on um, on YouTube, uh, Pareto Economics, where we have a bunch of videos which go into depth into all of these different topics we spoke about today. Uh, our website, Pareto-Economics.com, and you can find uh, me there or find our team there. Reach out if you'd like, have a conversation. If you, if for any of your members or your, uh, your listeners who uh, are free, February 2023, we'll be hosting our Global Power Index Summit again. So if you're interested in attending that or learning more about that. That event page will go up soon. Sign up to our newsletter, you know, the usual. Wonderful. Klisman Marathi, thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who would benefit from this. Please make sure that you give the podcast a review as well. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-and-laughs.com. And remember... I've just launched my new successful selling program. Uh, We're taking real life situations and uh, dissecting them and helping you to work out how to perform better by experiencing what it's like to be your buyer. It's a terrifying experience. Uh, You won't enjoy it at all. Drop me a line. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.